while everybody walks in, we're just going to go ahead and get started. I don't know how much I've got here today, so yeah, it could be really short, or it could be, it ain't going to be long, we're still going to get out of here at 940, and if we're not, Greg, just tell me, it's 940. So, um, let's, uh, let's begin by just asking the Lord to, to help us. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for blessing us and being good to us. And I pray that you would bless our time together and our discussion about gentle and lowly, about the heart of Christ towards, towards us as your people. Father, we, we can't even imagine or think that um, just what it is within you that says, I will show you mercy, going way back to even the fall. when that is what we get. Because we do not deserve um, salvation and good things because of our sin. And so, Father, we, do, we don't understand that. And so there's much in this chapter that certainly we don't understand when we think about your heart. Um, particularly the heart of Christ, which it, it makes more sense in some ways since he uh, took on flesh. But, Father, it's still such a great mystery. I pray that you would help us, that we would see your mercy in Christ today, and that we would look unto him, even as we look forward to taking the Lord's Supper together this morning. uh, May we look unto him. May he be more beautiful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So when we come to chapter 7, which we've now decided to break up, when you take three chapters in one go, it's, it's a lot. It seems like a lot. But now when I get to just one chapter, um, for those of you who read it, I hope you did read it. Um, and if you didn't, then next week, make sure you read. Um, they're not very long. But this particular one, very little application. Um, and so what I want to do today is just basically ask the questions. <clears throat> make some comments about, you know, hopefully hear from you guys that, 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 that read it. And then even if you didn't read it, you still can answer the questions, I think. And then after we do that, I'm going to move into something else that's directly related to this topic. And so <clears throat> question number six on page 23 in our study guide, why do we not feel the full weight and horror of our sin? It's a question for all of us. I don't know, maybe you do feel the full weight and horror of your sin. Um, what, what, what are your answers to that? What are, your, what are your thoughts to such a question, even if you didn't read it? Why do we not feel the weight of our sin? Anybody else can elaborate on what McCamey says? Which, by the way, is the first reason he gives in the book. <clears throat> that's the number. One, that's the first reason he gives to answer that question. So, yeah, we're good at rationalizing our sins. We are. Yeah. I mean, that's and, and it seems like the things that Jesus teaches on, like get the, go ahead and get the, uh, you know, plank out of your eye before you hit the speck of the other person. We are the. We are our own. I say best. Defender, We like to justify our own sins and look at other people's faults and other people's sins. And so when we do that, it's, 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 it's some way, ways difficult to answer this question. So why do we not feel the full weight of our sin? First answer there from the book, our own sin. Um, 
Any other reasons? I think it's a little different, but Satan is the father of lies. And so we can be deceived in that way, that, you know, being thinking that it's okay or thinking that it's not really that bad in some regard. Yeah, and that would be in many ways different from Christ in his flesh. I mean, he didn't deal with that in the... He knows, and he knows greater than we know. Um, but yeah, well, we're going to get to that, but that's true. Anybody we else? We don't truly understand holiness and righteousness. Because if we did, we would truly understand the depth of our own sin. Yeah, if you, the, kind of the famous, one of the famous lines from the Apostle Paul, who we would think or imagine he was further along than we are in his... We just do that with Paul, and uh, and what does he say? I am the chief of of sinners. So it is certainly, I think, our experience that the the further we move along in our sanctification, um, the more godly we become. Then the more we see how sinful we really are, and then we see the great love of God in Christ. Um, question seven. What do Christ's holiness and purity mean for the way He feels about those who sin, about the sin of those who do not belong to Him? That's the first question. Second question, what do His holiness and purity mean for the way He feels about the sin of those who do belong to Him? That's the first question. These are, these are not too difficult um, to answer, I don't think. First question, what's Christ's holiness and purity mean for the way he feels about <clears throat> the sin of those who do not belong to him? Romans 1, I don't know exactly right in the very first part, the wrath of God is revealed upon, poured out upon all unrighteousness. Um, and so, I think it's clear he would feel righteous indignation um, and the the it's we can't we, we really can't get to the bottom of that. His wrath would be so, and his anger would be so. As God, so strong. It's not even strong. It is everything that God is, and everything that God can pour out upon sin. Um, and so, it is not a good place to be. And such are sinners. Um, second question, though. What does His holiness and purity mean for the way He feels about the sin of those who do belong to Him? It's a pretty easy answer. Somebody give it to me. Compassion. Why would He feel compassion, though? Right. Compassionate towards our struggle with it. Um, that's good. Um, anybody else? He's compassionate. How else does he feel? I mean, this goes along with what we've been going through in Hebrews a lot. We don't have a great high priest who, who, who is unlike us in the days of his flesh. And we're going to get to something in a few minutes after 10 minute, more minutes or so that's, that I think will be very interesting to us. But... Um, but it really goes along with Christ being our great high priest who 
took on flesh. Um, but he's compassionate. What else, though? Well, the book says he's holy longing, holy love, and holy tenderness. Yeah, that's a good quote. Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. He basically uses this as an example to show because Isaiah was one of God's people by faith. He looked under, uh, unto God. And, uh, and then so what happens when Isaiah sees his holiness? That's one thing. And then what does God do? Even from his own character. Isaiah 6. Famous Verses in Isaiah 6. Let's just look at 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. Two covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The house was filled with smoke. So here we see the holiness of God. And then in verse 5, when Isaiah sees this holiness of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so what is it there? I guess what we're getting at is the heart of Christ towards those who come to Him, which Greg has just emphasized over and over. And not just who come to Him, but come to Him implied in that is certainly repentance. Because when we come to Him, we are repentant. But here's Isaiah. He sees the holiness of God. And then he sees his lostness and he says, woe, woe is me. And then what happens? In verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And so, it's such a great mystery to me, but we see the heart of God in mercy and grace towards this man who sees himself as a sinner. And then he says, we see the picture of, of, of touching the lips from the altar, which certainly if we went into that more is a picture of the altar eventually of Christ and his death and his resurrection. Um, but um, <clears throat> God shows him mercy as one of his own, as those who come to him. And so I think that's that's... Um, what he's getting at. I'm going to read a quote on page 70-71 by, by Goodwin. He quotes this Puritan who wrote on this topic quite a bit. I'm going to read this this part from part bottom of page 70, the top part of page 71 concerning the heart of Christ towards sinners. There is comfort concerning such infirmities and that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. That's what we saw with Isaiah. For he suffers with us under our infirmities, and by infirmities are meant sins, as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you and is so far 
from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it, yes, his pity is increased the more towards you. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that has, that has some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. So what affects us? Sin. And so that part drives him to pity even more. Again, for those who come to him. What shall not make for us when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity us the more? So what he's saying is in this chapter is that somehow or another, for those who are in Christ, I'm not talking about those who are outside of Christ, but for His people, even our very sins in some way moves the heart of God, the heart of Christ, to show us pity. Then top of page 71, the greater the misery is, the more is the pity when the party is beloved. Now all of miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it also. It as such also. And He, loving your persons and hating only the sin, has hate, His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But His affections shall be the more drawn out to you. And this, as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction, therefore fear not. And so... Our sins in this regard, if we are coming to, to God, to Christ in repentance, I think the, the, personally throughout my life, I'm like, man, I've done, that, I've done that sin again. Lost my patience again. I haven't been bold in my evangelism again. I have not prayed as I ought, but sins of omission for he that knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. And also just outright sin that I commit against my spouse or my, my family or my kids and then I do it again and then a week after we, I do it again and then sick, then I'm okay for some time in that one but other things are coming out and the, the depths of our heart and sin and the mysteries that we don't even know about and the ways we sin they're all there but in these ones that we know about and then what do we do? I, I, then I go, God how can, you, how can you put up with me anymore? Does anybody ever feel like that? Well, that's really what this entire book, and I think chapter 7 goes along with other things, to show us that for those who are in Christ, that's the key. For those who come to me, this is what His heart is for us. And so when we look unto Him even now in our sin as Christians and, and, and just come to Him um, in repentance, then that's His heart for us. And so always, no matter what, and that's, that's really proof that we are His, that we continue coming to him in such a way. But let's keep let's keep moving through here because I want to get to something else for the second half. <clears throat> Number eight. How would you summarize in your own words what Thomas Goodwin is saying in this quote? Um, anybody want to give a shot at that? Because I think I just did that. You might want to say it in a different way. Um, I think the, the illustration on 71 is good. 
Um, look in the middle of that page. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but He loves you. We understand this, says Goodwin, when we consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease. That's our disease, sin. Afflicting and this disease of sin afflicts us. A father hates the disease, but he loves the child even more in the child's disease. Because those of us who are parents know that's the case. When our children or one of our loved ones are suffering, we love them even more because of their affliction, because of their sickness. And we have pity for them even more. We know that. And so in some way, it's a mystery, but that is the heart of God towards sinners. Um, particularly, very particularly those who come to Him. Um, let's just move, keep, keep moving on. Uh, verse, I mean, uh, number nine. In what ways does Hosea 11 surprise you about God and His holiness? All right, I'm going to read Hosea 11, verses 7 to 9. So think about what what might surprise us about this. These verses from Hosea. He says on page 72, but reading from the Scriptures, My people are bent on turning away from Me. There we are. I know there's a lot more into this. We've got lost and not lost in Israel in those days. But my people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Then He says, But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. Wow. And we always must remember these words about the heart of God and these things are expressed in language that we can understand. That's so important for us. We are not on the same playing field here. To say that God has a hand or He is like a mother, those are words for us. But He John, says... What can I say something? Sure. You had mentioned um, the parent with the sick child. And the end of that verse, chapter 8, mine says, my heart is turned over within me and all my compassions are kindled. And you think about the child or the elderly family member who can't move themselves in the bed. And what do you do? You come in and you turn them over because your compassion for them doesn't want them to end up with bed sores and, and Infections, and, and that's Christ's heart for us. That His heart is turned over for us in His compassion. That might be even a better illustration than the sickness of the child, but both of them add to it. We can't. We could give twenty illustrations, and then every one of them, we still not get to the bottom of the greatness of the compassion Christ has and the pity He has upon His people. Um, but He says, "My heart recoils within me." My compassion grows warm. I mean, he's saying, how? You're bent on turning away from me, but then my heart recoils. My compassion grows even more warm and tender. Then he says, I will not execute my, my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
What surprises us about that? Anything at all? I guess that continual covenant relationship on how God is faithful and his people are not often faithful, but he continues to keep that relationship with them even though they're unfaithful. So what what, what do we want to do when someone continues to be unfaithful to us or when someone continues to sin against us or when our enemies continue to to bombard us, what do we what do we do? Exactly. That's why that what's so striking. But I am God, and not man. See, we would do the opposite. I think we define God like a human, and not who he is. So we think he should react like we would react, or we think he would react. Bonus question, Kristen. <laughs> What is what is what is the term he gives in the book in the footnote for the one making bringing God down to man and making him like a human? You remember the big word? Anthropomorphism. That's what Kristen just said, um, and that's what we do. Um, okay. You know what we're going to do? We're going to move on to something else very related for the last 15 minutes. In that same footnote, he talks about anthropomorphism, how we bring God down to us. But then, he, he gives another word, and it's called anthropopathism, which is interesting. Um, and so, to be anthropomorphic we might say is to bring God down to us but to, to be but to be anthropopathic I guess we could say means that God is not affected as humans as we are he's affected in some way we know that otherwise his compassion wouldn't be towards us as sinners but he's not like us which brings me to what I want to talk about for the rest of our time um, it is a theological term called impassibility. Has anybody ever heard of that? Anybody? Just curious. Okay. Um, I want, if you want to do a study on the attributes, attributes of God, God is love, God is holy, God is just, God is jealous God, God is all these things. And then even the other attributes, uh, incommunicable attributes would be like he is omnipresent, he is omniscient, all of these things. One of them is God is impassable. And here's why I want to talk about this. Um, and it's really connected to you know, God not being able to change. In other words, when we look at this chapter and we think that somehow, what, somehow or another... He reacts to our position and our sin. Does that mean that God then can change? Because we, we would automatically go answer, no, of course not. Okay? So another attribute is immutability. God cannot change. And so this means He's always the same. All His attributes are the same. His love, His patience, His kindness, His goodness, whatever it is, is always to the highest of the high. Because that is who he is. But <clears throat> which brings me to, to this next term, impassibility. 
Anybody, would anybody like to try to, to give a, a definition of impassibility? Maybe you didn't say anything, but you really knew what it was. What does it mean to be impassioned? Against passion, against passion, against feeling. Um, and so when I ask the question, what is impassibility? Before answering that, let's go to the opposite. What does it mean to be passable? To be passable means that you are able to, to change, particularly in response to, to something that happens to you. A good example of Greek god Zeus. If you'd studied mythology, you know that there's all this pantheon of gods, and the gods then, they change, and they'll become something else. And so there's one, one story I read from Barrett here. Zeus becomes a bull so that he can woo this beautiful princess so that she will get on his back, he will ride her away and have her for himself and change back. <laughs> and so this is what the Greek gods often did. They would, one minute they would be happy, the next minute they're sad. One minute they're luring, changing to lure this princess off, the next minute they're raining down thunder and lightning upon the world and then when everybody suffers then they all of a sudden they themselves start crying and then they react according to that suffering and then they show all of a sudden show pity is this what God is like is he passable in this way of course not the Bible teaches God is not like this at all if God were to change at every whim, showing anger and wrath at one point, and then pity and mercy at another in response to us, like the Greek gods, and he would be passable. This means he would be prone to suffer himself. Having passions that move him and emotions that change him, this would mean God would be at the mercy of emotional change. And this is the way the world sees God. I think that the world sees God like most of the Greeks view these, these Greek gods. It's, it's, I think when you, when you hear people's prayers, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, I think, but it's very clear. They don't see God as impassable. They see Him as responding in such a way, maybe letting me out or doing something bad to me because I've sinned or all of these things. God can change according to us. But God is not passable. He is, back to our <clears throat> attribute, He is impassable. Impassable. Now, that, the reason I brought this out, because this book says very clearly that Jesus, His heart is one of feeling, right? And He is, uh, he is, he is, he is passable. He is changing According to reacting, and, and, and it gets extremely deep here and very mysterious. And this is a great, again, a great mystery. But, what's, let, me, let me just keep going for just a minute longer on the definition of impassable. Let me give three characteristics of what it means to be impassable. <clears throat> if God were passable, means He could change in such a way as to react to, our, to all these things and be affected by us so that He might be able to change in some way. 
This means that he is, being, he is capable of being acted upon from without. And that such actions bring about emotional changes of state within God. Well, it seems this, this book seems to me to be getting there a little bit, kind of, doesn't it? Okay, that's come back to that. To be passable means that he is capable of freely changing his inner emotional state in response to an, to an interaction with the changing human condition and this world order. Everything's always changing. For God to be passable implies that his emotional feelings are like our emotional feelings. And that's really what we do. And we make him like us. It's anthropomorphism. So God experiences inner emotional changes as we do if he is passable, just like the Greek gods. But here's the definition that Barrett gives of being impassable. God is impassable in that He does not undergo successive fluctuating or emotional states. He's not going to throw a rage or have a tantrum in response to something. Nor can the created order alter Him in such a way as to cause Him to suffer any modifications or loss. To say God is impassable is to say that God cannot suffer any loss or change in Himself. Many, many theologians, liberal theologians, one in particular, heard about him a lot in seminary, and of course read about him again this week, a guy named Moltmann. He says that God chooses to change, so therefore it's okay. But he does change in this way. He is passable in response to this world. With that in mind, let's just think about this just for a moment longer. Here's a question, and this is what I'm getting at. Because when we get back to this book, the heart of Christ for sinners. Okay? Here's the connection between this and impassibility. If God is impassible, and Jesus is the Son of God, then how can God remain impassable when Jesus suffers and He dies on the cross? Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm moving away from this. So all that, you might not have got all that, but that question is important. If God is impassable... Jesus is the Son of God, then how can God remain impassable when Jesus suffers and dies on the cross? Those who do not believe in the divinity of Christ for sure have a serious problem with this. But so do those who still believe in His divinity. Because for Jesus to suffer and then to die, is that, that's change. So life was one of change. Even in the last few weeks in Hebrews, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Well, in order to think a little bit about this, we most, this is nothing new under the sun. This was a very difficult issue in the early church councils back in the first, especially third and fourth centuries. They had to go back and think about <clears throat> the two natures of Christ in one person. Does anybody ever think about that at all? I mean, is that something we don't think about? I'm just curious. Does anybody ever think about that? Because how in the world can, can he be 100% God, 100% man? I don't want to do it like that because it's not mixed. But. Over the last four weeks, I've had to have thought about that. Yeah, because I mean, this book is all about the humanity of Christ. So that has to have been in your thinking in the last four weeks. Uh, and there's whole, 
these councils didn't go, oh, let's just meet over the weekend and let's figure this out. They met for sometimes years to figure this out before they actually put the book out on the conference and there's your council at Nicaea or Ephesus or Constantinople or whatever. But here's what they said concerning the two natures of Christ. This is the, I think this is Chalcedon. Chalcedon, I don't know. Moving down into Egypt, right? Way back in that part of the world because we have a couple Egyptians in the room. <laughs> we still count them though. Still count them. <clears throat> anyway, so there they are. I don't know if they met in different places, but that area of the world, especially in Egypt, North Africa, Alexandria, in that, in that, in that area is where all this stuff was taking place back in the first four centuries. So here's what they said concerning the two natures. We've got about six minutes. <clears throat> the two humanity, deity of Christ, are related four, four ways. Without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The denial of those four words, confusion, change, division, separation, is crucial because concerning our topic today of impassibility in Christ, we must be careful not to attribute a human attribute, here's the key, to Christ's divinity. This is where the incarnation is the most beautiful concept in the history of the universe. So we must not get confused in this way. When we do, we have confused the natures. We can't confuse these natures and subject them to change. Now the assumption of many is that Jesus must suffer in both His divinity and His humanity. In other words, there's change in His humanity and there is the same kind of change in His divinity. That's where we have to be careful. And so when we do this, and the world does this, and liberal theologians do this, in this way God suffers in Christ. But the thing is, we can say that God suffers in Christ, I believe. We have to clarify that, but we can say that. Because we can't take out the divinity, can we? Through all of Jesus' life. <clears throat> so the assumption of many is that Jesus must suffer in both His divinity and humanity. In this way, God suffers. So when this happens, the divine can change. It can be passable. The result is the human, humanization of the divine. Anthropomorphism. If the divine nature can suffer... If the divine nature can suffer in this way, there is confusion, there is change, and there is division. And if this is the case, what happens to the divine nature of immutability? Because we're, thinking, we're talking about impassibility, but if he can change there, then you go back to this other huge attribute of God, that then God can change. <clears throat> God can change. There's a change in God's divinity when we do this. In the Incarnation, though, if you think about the Incarnation, God does not change. How, 
how would you answer that question? How would you say that God does not change in the incarnation? God in His essence does not change. Okay, what happened to Zeus? When he, he became a bull, didn't he? He changed, didn't he? So in the incarnation, what happened? Did God all of a sudden change into a man? This is very important. That, that's the key. So, all of his essence, no change. No change into a man. He took on flesh. You see that? The humanity. That's, that's key for us to understand this. Otherwise, God becomes impassable. God becomes not immutable, or God can change. It's very, very important. So at the end of the day, Christ, I would say, is impassive as divine, but passable as a man. That is why we can say that He was tempted in everybody like we were. That's why we can say we don't have a great high priest who did not, who does not understand our weaknesses and sympathize with us. Going back to the book, <clears throat> and of course, I think we can say God knows what it is like to suffer as the Son of God because they are there together, the humanity and the divinity together. Such a mystery, but in the incarnation, God does not. Change he takes on, takes on big difference. In this way, they are separated, but they are united into one person. To me, that's the greatest mystery. Now, if we wanted, if we had more time, and you wanted to talk about how the divine and the human communicate, that's what they dealt with at Chalcedon. Okay, we're not even touching that. That's where the mystery really comes in or how one was transferred from one to the other. <laughs> and I'm just going to leave that as it was, as, as it is. And y'all, we can talk about that later because it's time to finish. But it was necessary for Christ to suffer as a man like us. However, God does not suffer in a man. He suffers as a man. That's key. For us. And so I know we don't normally think about such things, but we should. We really should because this helps us not to fall into error with the Mormons, not to fall into error with the Jehovah's Witnesses, or not to fall into error like Moltmann who says, well, God, of course He changes. And so understanding the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and in the book of Hebrews, that's where we're at now, how much do we see about His divinity? It's full Hebrews is just slapdab full of his divinity, but it's also slapdab full of his, his humanity. And his humanity, I always like to say, it veils his divinity. That's why the Jews said, you make yourself equal to God. Well, he, he was equal to God. And so we must keep this in mind. Um, Let me, let me finish with, with a quote from this book. <clears throat> because this don't answer all of my questions about his suffering and how he relates to us for sure, but it, it gives us a guideline to start with for sure. 
but I'm going to finish page 136. Not in your book, another book. Anybody read this, by the way? None greater, the undomesticated attributes of God. Probably top three. You read it, JB? Probably top three in my um, library for the past three or four years. Um, If God is just as much a victim of suffering as we are, then He is helpless, powerless, and hopeless to embark on a rescue mission. But that is not the picture we see in the Gospels. The Gospels portray the Son of God fully in control of His mission. Again and again, He sets His face towards Calvary. He announces. He predicts. His redemptive suffering. He puts on full display His total sovereignty. Remember, Christ did not... They didn't take His life when they wanted to. He laid it down. And even then, He, at the end, it is finished. He gave up His Spirit. It's, it, Christ is in control all the way through. Not only does impassibility guarantee that Christ can save sinners, but impassibility guarantees that God's love and grace are free. If God is passable, then His love is contingent on us. According to Moltmann, God's love depends on the creature for its fulfillment. But does God need us to be fulfilled? If He is impassable, He does. He can flesh that out another time. But a real give and take relationship requires passionate love. A love that is mutually dependent and changed by the one it loves. However, such a passion, such passionate love is entirely conditioned on humans. Grace is no longer free. Mercy is no longer a gift. And love is no longer gratuitous. God must look on or look to those outside Himself for love. The Bible teaches throughout that God's love is unconditional, free, and purely altruistic. Why? Because this love is impassable. It does not look to the creatures for its effectiveness. It's rooted in God's immutable nature. So in the end... Only a God who does not suffer can accomplish redemption for a suffering humanity. Only one who is impassable can become incarnate as the suffering servant. And only one whose love depends on no one can offer graces free of charge. So at the end of the day, when we read this book, I hope that even these last 15 minutes will just give us a little bit of ammunition and thinking to help us separate correctly these thoughts as Christ is the one who is said in this book who he's focusing on which we can do the same thing of God in the Old Testament but as Christ shows pity and mercy and compassion how does he do that and in some way if you go back to mercy why does God show mercy on any of us it's mercy and it's and it comes out of him and so let's keep that in mind I'm going to stop we did go about four minutes over but We're going to stop now. I'm going to pray quickly. Father, we give thanks again for this time. Please help us think through these things properly. And as we keep keep going through this book, um, help us now as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper and to meet together. Give us great grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.